but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. I'm James. We've made it through the interminable slog of May Clay Tennis. So far. We have barely made it through. And in 2025, we're going to have more of it. Toronto and Cincinnati. Apparently you're going to try the format that has flopped so hard so far. This brings us to the brink of the French Open. We'll be recording our French Open preview episode later this week. And in news pertaining to the French Open, pretty big news, I'd say, we got, well, not a hola todos, but we got what we were kind of expecting. We got a scheduled Rafa press conference. After pulling out of Rome, it wasn't really that surprising that he's pulling out of Roland Garros. He has no practice, no lead-up tournaments. This is not how he likes to prepare for a major, but he did announce officially that he will not play Roland Garros for the first time ever. The first time since 2005. And further, he'll be taking a break from the tour, from practicing, from doing anything tennis-related to try and finally get this injury sorted out. He hopes to come back and play Davis Cup at the end of the year, but that seems to be it for tennis in 2023. The goal for him as he says, is to be healthy to give 2024 a full go, a full healthy go to play, according to him, probably, quote, probably, his final year on tour. Yeah, I, if you've seen some of the footage coming from the Academy of Rafa Practicing, you know that he hasn't been playing practice sets with big time players, which he likes to do out of majors. There have been, it seems, a lot of practices that end in some wincing, some uh, conversating with his team. It hasn't looked great, and he hasn't really been practicing seemingly at full tilt, unless it was happening somewhere off camera. Uh, It's not a surprising result, but this psoas injury is very persistent. I hope he's getting the best medical advice possible because I don't think he he doesn't want like a ceremonial goodbye to the tour, right? He he wants to play to win. We'll have more on this on the French Open preview episode, but to your opening of the episode and the title of this episode, Roman Ruins, this has been quite the debacle. Another fortnight, another disaster. Uh, and to be fair, it wasn't all a disaster, but... These extended tournaments, larger draws, are seeming to be kind of a flop with fans. At least the online fans. The tournament in Rome was beset by rain interruptions, many rain delays. Of course, that's something that tournament organizers cannot control. Mm -hmm. That said, (laughs) there were so many sessions. Uh, this, This is a rainy season in Rome. May In May, Rome gets a lot of rain, we know from experience. And like you said, the tournament can't control this. It's not their fault. But you have had so many days, so many opportunities to schedule around the rain. And still, 
The problem remains that on both the men's and the women's side, the semifinals and the finals are played on back-to-back days. Why? I mean, I know why, but why? Of course, like the the cynical reason is that it's the weekend, you have the chance to have blockbuster sessions on Saturday and Sunday and get the most people out and, and get people to buy tickets on weekends. Got it. But why, if you have 11 days and it's full of rain, and the potential is already there before the tournament starts that rain is going to be a problem, why do you schedule like this? And of course, again, two tournaments in a row, it is the women's side that's given short shrift, that's treated as an afterthought. They squeezed in both men's semis on Saturday. It's going on 10.30, 11pm, and we still don't know if the women's final is going to occur. The women ended up going on court around 11 on center court. We were told that it was the player's choice, that they were asked if they wanted to play tonight or tomorrow, and they decided tonight. Now, the runner-up Kalinina said in press, quote, As I understood, we don't have any other choice because tomorrow they have a fully booked schedule. Oh, so that really uh, contradicted the tournament's report that the players chose. Uh, maybe the players chose from one option. It also contradicts some very loud people on Twitter. Yeah, some journalists even. Who were screaming at us. Not us specifically, but us plural. <laughs> us plebes. <laughs> us neophytes. For w- not knowing how things go. How, how it actually works. Mm. It's this determination to be contrarian. Like, if a lot of people on the internet are mad about something, someone has to come out and say, like, you're wrong. You don't get it. And it turns out the the internet folks kind of did get it. The WTA issued a statement via Reuters saying, quote, it was the right thing to do, uh, that the weather tied their hands and they owed it to the 8,000 paying fans. Yep. Which, when you get to the day of, I, I get that response. Because people have already paid for those tickets. For me, this has been a scheduling issue before the tournament. How you set up your order of play before the tournament. Mm -hmm. The, yes, fans paid for a WTA final. Uh, And they, the tournament and the WTA wanted it to happen on Saturday, clearly. This happens all the time in tennis tournaments. That sessions get canceled, even finals. Sometimes finals gets get pushed to Monday, or you play a semi and a final on the same day. Very few tournaments can afford to build a roof on their main court. That's kind of the long and short of it. But, like, how do we get here repeatedly? And how is it always that the WTA finals are not before such and such time? And why, on European clay, when you have expanded tournaments, are people playing until 1 a.m.? Again and again. And like we're told, well, there's there's just no way around it, guys. Sorry. Of, of course, there's a way around it. If at you sl- wanted to think creatively. At slams, we're told, well, the men play best of five. So we need to have a certain amount of time allotted for that. But here, everybody's playing best of three. Right. And uh, what you could not blame on an act of God or the weather was the trophy presentation in Rome after the women's final. The crowd was booing constantly. <laughs> it wasn't clear who they were booing or why, but they were they were not pleased. They gave Rybakina the wrong trophy at first. They gave her the runner-up trophy. 
they asked Rybakina to speak first, forgetting to ask the runner-up to speak at all. So Kalinina only got to speak because Elena Rybakina mentioned, oh, like, shouldn't she talk? They usually go first. It was a total shit show. There is no excuse for that. And again, you have two tournaments in a row making a mockery of the WTA's product, and the WTA does what? Can't. I guess my first question is, can they Can they say anything? Like, are they bound from some non-disparagement clauses? I don't know. If they weren't, would they say anything? It's just, it's embarrassing. We've talked a lot about how this two-week Masters tournament format is bad for the viewers. Bad for tennis fans. Uh, we got some insight from the top WTA player as to what it's like for them, the actual players, from Iga Sviantek. She brought up a good point about this format, meaning that these players are, quote, at work for longer periods of time. And although you do get rest between matches, you're in tournament mode, you're in the tournament for much longer than usual. And this is per Tamani Cario. Yeah, I thought this was a great point, and it was something I was thinking about, like, yeah, you get more rest in between matches, like you do at a major, but you're you're on the clock, like you're in tournament mode, as you said, for a long period of time. So there's not really a time that you can relax, right? Because you're always practicing, you're always keeping yourself warm on off days. When you have shorter tournaments, you have maybe a week here and there to just chill. And Iga has been playing for five consecutive weeks, essentially. To the actual tennis in Rome, on the women's side, Yelena Rybakina beat Kalinina 6-4, one love, before Kalinina had to retire with a left thigh injury. And that was the third victory for Rybakina at this tournament, where her opponent had to retire mid-match. Yeah, kind of a weird tournament for Rybakina. It's not something you can control, of course. Uh, getting three retirements is just unusual. Uh, Kalinskaya retired. Number one, Iga Shiontek pulled out in the third set of their match, which was actually like a pretty good contest up until that point. And then, of course, Kalinina in the final. And for her part, Angelina played for almost four hours against Beatriz Haddad Maya in the quarterfinals nearly three hours against Kudermatova in the semis. And then we get to the final where you've waited around all day. You don't know if you're going to play. You have to keep warm for hours and hours and hours. And you go out at 11 p.m. and it just, you know, you can't give your best tennis. It sucks. Her biggest, by far her biggest final of her career. It's title number five for Rybakina. Second this year, both of them being Masters 1000s. She also pairs these two wins with finals in Australia and Miami. And you have something noted here that she's only the third person after Monica Seles and Maria Sharapova to have done that, made the finals at all four of those tournaments. Yeah. Australia, Indian Wells, Miami, and Rome. The stat is slightly devalued in that Serena and Venus didn't play Indian Wells, but otherwise it's really a big achievement. <laughs> it's okay, you can laugh. I was just being petty. It was difficult for me to tell whether you were delivering this seriously or not. I just let it <laughs> ride. I would say 50-50. She moves to 3-1 and one versus Shriantek. All three wins this year. Now for Iga, this is a bit of a worrying situation here. Having to retire against Rybakina with this thigh injury. 
she is the defending champion at Roland Garros. And that uh, that starts in a week. Mm-hmm. Now, she did say she felt sudden pain in her thigh. It clearly hampered her movement, as you could see in the third set. And she pulled out, and it sounds like out of an abundance of caution. She said afterward that she saw a doctor, and she doesn't think it will be anything serious ahead of Roland Garros. Iga is still far and away the favorite at Roland Garros, until proven otherwise. Just keep an eye on this injury. Like, hopefully it's nothing serious. Because we actually have an extremely competitive a top, what, three or four women who could snatch this title at Roland Garros? That just... Yeah, I feel like you just contradicted yourself. What? To say that Iga is by far and away she the is, favorite. She is. But, then... but we can't discount Yelena's win here, Sabalenka's win in Madrid. Like, we have a very competitive group at the top. And Yelena goes in with these three consecutive wins over Iga. However, all that said, Iga is still the best on slow clay, the best at Roland Garros, until somebody else proves otherwise. Mm. I don't think that's contradictory. This is something that we'll talk about more on the French Open preview episode, but I think there are so many women who could win this tournament. On the men's side, who had this on their bingo card? (laughs) Daniil Medvedev wins his first clay court title, his 20th overall, and this first clay court title comes in Rome. On one of the slowest surfaces of them all. It's a big one. It's a pretty important one. He is leading the tour with five titles. And he started this run almost the exact second that he fell out of the top ten at the end of January. He wins Rotterdam, Doha, Dubai, Indian Wells final, Miami, and then Rome. He had actually never won a single match in Rome before winning this tournament. He played three previous times, never won a match. He gives a lot of credit to this success, to changing his strings to Technifiber. He's getting more power on his forehand and also switching his shoes to Lacoste. <laughs> yes, and he even said in press, I'm not saying this only because uh, they're my sponsors, but he's seen like a marked change in his game, especially this power on the forehand. And you could see it in his matches in the final, like, all these forehand winners, more control, more power. His opponent in the final, Holger Rune, 7-5-7-5. To reach the final, Medvedev beat Zverev, who is a former winner in Rome, in the round of 16. The surprise quarterfinalist, Yannick Hanfmann. And then, old pal, Stefanos Tsitsipas in the semifinal. Daniel is now 8-4 and four versus Stefanos. And has added a second victory on clay. But he's not supposed to beat Stefanos on clay, (laughs) right? After this match, Petty Medvedev showed up and showed out. Mm -hmm. Because last year in Cincinnati, after Stefanos beat Daniil, Stefanos did this little... This little stomp stomp. uh, It looked maybe like a Dougie variation. And at this match in Rome, Medvedev does his own little jig after Mm -hmm. winning the match. I'm calling it the toddler twist. There was nothing rhythmic about it. It was hilarious. (laughs) But the fact that he did it, uh, it rose to the occasion. Mm -hmm. You know how like when little babies move their butt and sort of like bounce to the music? That's what that looked like. A little twist. Halger Huna, for his part, has been one of the best players on clay so far. Has to be considered a contender at Roland Garros, especially with somewhat of a vacuum. At the top with Djokovic's injury, 
Nadal's withdrawal, Runa beat Djokovic and Kasper Ruud, last year's uh, Roland Garros runner-up, to reach the final here. And he's now 7-2 versus top five opponents. Like, that is, <laughs> that is wild. I think it shows clearly how competitive he is in big matches. He's won 14 matches across the clay season so far, including a title in Munich, and was the runner-up in both Monte Carlo and Rome. I mean, this kid is not my favorite, but we are going to be stuck with him for quite a long time. Sure. <laughs> uh, but he's still very fresh when it comes to major play. Yes. It's an entirely yes. different kettle of fish to be playing seven best-of-five matches mm-hmm. on slow red dirt, playing multiple bruising four-plus-hour matches. We've yet to see how that plays out with him, physically. Totally. We end up with Medvedev as the winner, but at the start of this tournament, with both Alcaraz and Djokovic in this draw, with Djokovic being the defending champion, having won this multiple times, this is a sub- an even doubly surprising result, because we had Carlos crashing out very early, and then Djokovic looking a shadow of himself still. Mm-hmm. And a winner who continues to say how much he hates the surface, but is playing well on it. Uh, Carlos lost to number 135, Fabian Maroshan, in round two. Nevertheless, Carlos is back to the number one ranking. Djokovic lost those winner points from last year. And it's just, it's hard to win Madrid and Rome back-to-back. Really hard. And I think it's probably even more difficult now that the tournaments have expanded. Those two titles. What? Madrid and Rome. <laughs> yes. Very difficult to achieve. Not everybody has those. Mm-hmm. Maybe Serena should have given her more credit for that. So, yes, this was a shocking result. Is it uh, the biggest upset ever? No, I don't think so. I Like, there are there's context in this match. For Djokovic, he had a straight sets win over Echeverry in the first round, in his first round, round of 64, and then beat Grigor Dimitrov in three sets before Cam Nori in the round of 16 in straight sets before Holgaruna took him out in the quarterfinals. Mm-hmm. So going into Roland Garros, the elbow is still a question mark. Novak has shown many times that he's capable of winning majors while injured, so uh, I'm not ready to count him out of this title, but it's definitely not the preparation that he wanted. And you can tell he's feeling salty. Angst in general. Angst ridden. You uh, refer to that match against Nori. It was a straight sense win over the Brit. But there was this incident. Describe the incident. <laughs> well, Novak left this sitter for Nori that he could easily finish at net. Novak turned his back. It was back. a high ball that Nori would have to hit an overhead. Right. And Novak turned his back and Nori smashed it and it kind of clipped him. In the leg. In the ankles. And Novak was not happy. Nori apologized immediately, but Novak was very pissed. Clearly, he was still not happy after the match and shared why. Quote, he was doing all the things that were allowed. He's allowed to take a medical timeout. He's allowed to hit a player. He's allowed to say, come on, in the face more or less every single point from basically first game. Those are the things that we players know in the locker room. It's not fair play. It's not how we treat each other. But again, it's allowed. Sir. This is so sanctimonious. First of all, I would 
I don't believe that Nori was saying, come on, in your face. But if he were, it's certainly something that you have done. A lot of screaming, a lot of histrionics in Djokovic matches. And, you know, I say this as a Serena fan. It's like, it's, it's fine. It happens. But just own it. I mean, you know my position. It's well documented. I hope players are hitting each other on purpose at the net. <laughs> Not in the face. Like, don't hit anyone in the face. Don't actually hurt them. But this is tennis. Especially if you're a doubles player, you're used to getting hit with the ball. And sometimes it's the best play. In this case, it wasn't necessary. But I also don't think that Nori did it on purpose. And also, it is distracting to turn your back on your opponent in the middle of a point. Why would you do that? Is he not supposed to keep his focus on the ball to hit the ball? Like, he was basically conceding the point. But, like, why are you doing that? Right, but I'm saying the presumption here is that Nori should have seen him do that out of his periphery. Right, he should have seen it and adjusted where he hit the ball. I don't know how how long he had to think about it, like how much control he had over that shot. Unfortunately, he hit the guy in the leg. Is it the end of the world? Novak remained very salty about it, said that Cam and I get along so well off court, I basically can't believe he would act like this. Just like, get over it. Like, are you not Novak Djokovic? Shouldn't you be the person that your opponent gets really excited to do well against? To pump themselves up against? I, I don't understand. <laughs> the whole thing is so bizarre it to me. It was funny to me. I think he's, I mean, I don't blame him. Like, he's not in a good mood. He won, but it clearly he's not feeling 100%. So I think he's just not in a great mood in general. That's the other thing. This was a straight sets win. Yeah. Uh, back to Ika for a second. <laughs> She's never beating the allegations. This is so funny. Her phone started ringing during her match against Rybakina, and she had to run over and silence it. It took a while, Well, by at, the way. At first, nobody knew it. whose phone it was. A but phone yeah. was ringing. Ika didn't really know herself. And then it was like, oh, oh shit, that could be mine. <laughs> and then she goes over, and it's her phone ringing. It took her a while to find the phone uh, in the myriad bags and crevices. And then uh, you wouldn't believe, like, the conspiracies that have sprouted out about this phone. That, like, they think it was Daria calling her on purpose in a blatant act of gamesmanship. Oh, my I'm God. Not, <laughs> I do not subscribe to that. To be very clear, it was just, like, too funny, considering the allegations that have already been lobbed at Iga. Now, Rome is the home tournament of Ubaldo, noted tennis journalist for many reasons. And so you'd have been... Forgiven if you thought that this question in press came from him, given his track record. It wow. was not. Catching strays over here. It was not him. <laughs> it was not him. No. But Arena Sabalenka in press was asked this question, quote, How do you feel to have the heritage from Serena Williams? You look like the only one who is able to have so much power on court, to return and serve like a man almost. Do you feel that or not? And she says, if I feel that or not, like she wasn't understanding the question. And the reporter says, to be the new Serena. Sabalenka answered as well as anyone possibly could have. She said, I don't think about that. That sounds good, you know? I'm not focusing on that. I'm just focusing on improving myself and getting better every day. So avoid the part about playing like a man. Say, wow, it would be great to be compared to Serena, but I'm not thinking about that. Slam dunk from her. But can we not? Like, can we just stop? This is so embarrassing. It, like, it gives so much ammunition to the people who are like, oh, tennis press is terrible. That is terrible. 
abjectly and again terrible. it's like the the apotheosis of a woman tennis player is to be as much like a man as possible right to play like a man let's not get into it speaking of arena she said on instagram that she still has not received her visa to enter the united kingdom for wimbledon uh that's you know part of the equation is that you you stopped the ban for belarusian players but they still need a visa to get into the country and apparently she's not the only one and so is this something if it plays out to the point where players do not get their visa in time we've seen this happen before this happened to victoria azarenka a couple of years ago yeah it happened to kuznetsova uh, it's frequent with players from, I guess, Eastern countries uh, like Russia, Belarus, Ukraine. So it could end up that this remains a ban in effect, even though it's allegedly been lifted. It's just something to keep an eye on. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's premature. There's still time. But like these players would also like to enter the country to play grass warmups. One more holdover from Rome. Andy Murray with the rare L. Uh, yeah, this was not it. This was not good. Just a miscalculated joke of a tweet, I suppose. He he celebrated a birthday at this challenger that he was at, the one with Vavrinka, somewhere in France. Andy okay. Mori was playing a challenger, and he he said, "quote If I don't get a cake of equal size, if not slightly bigger than Alcaraz today, I'm going to be absolutely effing furious." To which. Feliciano Lopez could not help himself. Could not. So, he responds, quote, hope I can arrange something. And then deleted it. The, I mean, the tweet was bad. It was a total miscalculation. Uh, I'm only, like, honestly, I'm only being this kind because it's Andy Murray, but it sucked. And then the association with Feliciano, who we know is his friend, to come and piggyback off that, that's not good. That makes you look like shit. One of the big off-the-court news that we got since we last recorded was the story that the Cincinnati tournament may be moving to Charlotte, North Carolina. Yeah, this was reported widely. Cincinnati Inquirer is the place to go for it, in my opinion. Uh, support local news. <laughs> the The new owner of the Western and Southern Open in Mason, Ohio, is BMOC Capital which is run by Ben Navarro, who is Emma Navarro's father, you know, Emma of the Frequent Wildcard. BMOC Capital purchased the Cincinnati tournament last August. They From the USTA. And they want to build a tennis complex in Charlotte and potentially move the tournament there. So that's how it's being covered. If you read the story, I think a few layers start to reveal themselves. In Charlotte, the local taxpayers will cover one-third of the cost. $133 million. This new complex is going to cost $400 million. It would include four stadiums, 40 total courts, and includes room for pickleball, which was apparently a stipulation of the proposal. Public-private partnerships. Wow. Always so great for the public, isn't it? The taxpayers always win. We see this all <laughs> the time with funding of major professional stadiums. Yes. With baseball stadiums. We just heard recently that the Athletics will be relocating to Las Vegas. Uh, the uh, Oakland A's? Yes. Are moving, really? Yes. Oh. it's a, It's been a long, drawn-out thing over the years, and it's finally happening. We just don't often see this with tennis. Or maybe we do, and it's just so ill-reported. 
you know, or it, just on such a much smaller scale. Right. Just so happens that the Cincy tournament is one of the largest tournaments in North America. This is very common in sports, as you said. Uh, in Toronto, we're dealing with it in public transit, the public-private partnership between Metrolinx and this consortium to build the Eglinton uh, Rail Transit. If you're in Toronto, you know it's been an absolute disaster. A lot of public money dumped into it, and when it fails, the government is always blamed. It's never the private side. Anyway, <laughs> public, like local governments, are expected to pour a lot of money into these events in order to attract private investment or not scare private investment away. And so, in my opinion, that's what's happening here. BMO Capital has been very open about having, quote, productive conversations with government officials on the state level in Ohio to expand the current site, which is at Lindner Family Tennis Center in Mason, and the Ohio State Budget Bill that is currently in the Ohio State Senate includes $84.5 million for the Lindner Tennis Center, and this is a $22.5 million increase from their usual earmark. Right, and so the goal here is to bring the Lindner Family Tennis Center up to scratch with what this proposed facility would be in, in Charlotte. Exactly. Right? So it's, it's a scare tactic. Yeah. In my view, based on reading this, BMOC Capital is essentially threatening Mason with them moving to Charlotte unless you invest such and such public taxpayer funds into improving the site. I have trouble like hiding my personal feelings about this issue. I think it's gross. Like I think it's sick. I don't understand why public money is expected to be invested at all. Uh, I know they're always, you know, they're saying new jobs, obviously the huge tax incentive to have a major event, tons of money spent in your city, but still, like the private side of the partnership is making a lot of money. So just build it. And I think the first reaction from people when they heard this is that like, why? Why would they move? Cincinnati is a very popular tournament. It's one of the oldest tennis tournaments in the world. It's uh, been going since 1899 when it started at Xavier University in Cincinnati. It seems to bring in a ton of money, fans, interest. There are few, very few tournaments in the Midwest. If you've been to that tournament, you can't help but come away with this idea of it already having a certain largesse. It's mm -hmm. a big, sprawling site and event you know like what are we trying to do here and what happens to this site if the tournament moves does another tournament go there right i you know you have this massive site that was built for a major tennis tournament i mean we've been to other masters tournaments uh in toronto nowhere nothing close nothing touching the largesse of cincinnati rome, rome is beautiful but again the facilities cannot hold a candle to Cincinnati. Well, uh, I mean, there's the history and the oh, sure. cultural there's, there's import. There's the beauty, whatever, but like the actual facilities? Mm -hmm. No. I'm not saying that Mason is the most exciting place in the world. Certainly it's not. But I'm not going to, you know, slag on someone's hometown here. I just, I don't get it. And when I read the story from the Cincinnati Inquirer, oh, like then I got it. They're either serious about going, going to Charlotte or they're holding Charlotte as leverage and saying... We need your government to put in more money. Either way, BMOC Capital claims that they'll be making a decision by the end of the summer. Spring, summer, mm -hmm. September, Spr fall. <laughs> September for Joggers. spring, summer. It's just like, it's so emblematic of late capitalism. It's so wasteful. 
it's like there's literally no point to do this. We're in the middle of, you know, a climate crisis. Construction for no reason shouldn't happen. A story that got uh, a quite a few people upset this past fortnight was Dominic Team not being awarded a wild card to the French Open. And on the face of it, you have a two-time finalist here, somebody who was a stalwart in the top 10 for so many years, one of the few players to consistently challenge the big three. You know, this seemed like a no-brainer. But as you have written here, maybe the tournament had prior knowledge to expect the withdrawals of Nadal and then later Murray, or to expect that team who was just on the cusp of qualifying and getting direct entry would eventually get there regardless. Yeah. <laughs> that said, this was a whole lot of bad PR for no reason. I guess, like, I hesitate to say that because I don't know what knowledge Roland Garros had before awarding the wild cards. Like, we've had, uh, what, five top 30 players pull out this week. So Nadal, Berrettini, Kyrgios, there's a story on that one, Carreño and Chilich have all pulled out. And Roland Garros just may have had advanced knowledge of that, and that's why they didn't award a wild card. Like, this could be a total non-issue. I mean, it would become a non-issue, but then you you have a few days here where yeah, you're yeah. catching a lot of strays, right? Like, <laughs> you could easily have given him the wild card and then, and then said, well, it. oh, hey, we'll give it to somebody else now. You that's know? true, yeah. Uh, the, yeah, the other news is that Andy Murray recently pulled out of Roland Garros a few days ago. He was uh, not even that far from being seated because of all the withdrawals. Ben Shelton, in his debut Roland Garros, will be seated 30. Milos Raonic is back almost. He has been off the tour for almost two years. I was just thinking about Milos. We have a Milos racket that I won from my last job uh, in our house. And I was like, I wonder what Milos is up to. Is he retired? He is not. He'll be coming back on grass, as will Kei Shikori. Again, like this, the same generation, two guys whose injuries have absolutely rocked their careers. Uh, and another one I was wondering, like, is he, is he ever going to come back? It's easy to sort of lose track of both of their huge achievements. In other injury news, you may have been wondering, why haven't I heard about Brooksby Jensen Swanson? He's had two wrist surgeries. Yes. To answer my question about Emma previously... They don't do them at the same time, <laughs> so you do have at least one working hand at a time. Um, he's just had right wrist surgery to fix a dislocated tendon. This is following a surgery on his left wrist. He uh, he doesn't have a fixed return date, but, I mean, this is sounds like pretty serious stuff. He has not played since the Australian Open. Hugo Gaston. Wow. L'Equipe reported this story, I think, today that Ugo was hit by a massive fine. You never hear this number in tennis. 144,000 euro for unsportsmanlike conduct. That's more than the prize money he's earned this year so far. The ATB said this was his fourth violation for unsportsmanlike conduct in 2023 alone. So what happened was, and there's a video of this, during his match versus Borna Cioric in Madrid, he purposely dropped a ball out of his pocket in order to get a let in the <laughs> middle of a point. <laughs> a point that he was guaranteed to lose. 
That is some gnarly stuff. That is so Bush League. Apparently, he had been warned for the same behavior at the end of last year and then accumulated four violations for unsportsmanlike conduct this year. The ATP has agreed to cut the fine in half upon appeal. That's only if he doesn't receive any further warnings this year. Which, I mean, based on his track record, that's a pretty tall order. But what are you doing? You don't make that much money. I mean, that's cheating. You know, like, that's not just gamesmanship. That's actually cheating. So the the ATP recently made changes in their code of conduct to give the tour the leeway to impose really huge fines for this sort of thing. And it gives them the ability to double the amount of fine on successive violations, which accounts for how massive this one is. He could just find his way off the tour at this point, (laughs) at the rate he's going. More bad news for Simona Halep. Yeah. Okay. So the International Tennis Integrity Agency, which has been charged with leading anti-doping in tennis, announced that Simona has had a second charge against her for doping. This is based on irregularities in her athlete biological passport. This was a terminology, a thing that a lot of people learned about in the last few days. Yes, and... I had, you know, I knew about the biological passport. I wasn't totally clear on, like, what it was, but I knew it was a tool that anti-doping has been using across, like, track and field and uh, and cycling. It, quote, monitors selected biological variables over time that indirectly reveal the effects of doping rather than attempting to detect the doping substance or method itself. And that's from WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency. Mm-hmm. Now, correct me if I'm wrong... But my understanding of it then is that the more you test, the more your biological passport becomes developed. These doping agencies then have a profile of what your normal levels are. And so if something in that blood work, in that biological passport spikes, while you won't know what is causing it to spike, you'll know that some some substance that should not be there is there. Right. So the passport doesn't actually reveal any sort of drug or steroid or anything, but it's looking at changes in your physiology. And like you said, once you get more and more tests for the passport, it establishes kind of a normal range for, for you. This is based on the natural stability of one unique human being's physiology. They test biomarkers like uh, hemoglobin, hematocrit, red blood cell count, mean corpuscular volume, all of these things that I don't understand. I don't I don't really know what those mean or what the normal ranges are, but these biomarkers are given a range that's normal for you and uh, according to WADA, these markers are relatively stable through your adult life. And so it's clear to see when when one variable spikes that it's probably due to something foreign. The ITIA made clear that this is separate from the finding of Raxadustat uh, during the U.S. Open. The charge was in October. And so to me, I, I am personally unclear, like, was this biological passport irregularity caused by that? Uh, or is it basically more evidence that a foreign substance caused these irregularities on a more long-term basis? Simona has said, quote, The only thing I hope for at this point 
is to have the possibility to finally access the independent and impartial judges in a tribunal that will give me the chance to prove my innocence. Now, when the first news broke of Simona Halep having a doping issue last year sometime? Mm -hmm. In October. We saw the tennis community at large rally behind her. And the two biggest supporters were her former coach, Darren Cahill, and her most recent coach before this all happened, King Patrick. Mm -hmm. Patrick M. The best coach on earth. And again, this time around, both men have come out swinging, again, in defense of Simona. Darren tweeted a day ago, quote, I stand by every single word of my original statement way back in October. My belief and support of Simona is unwavering. I look forward to her having the chance to present her case to the independent panel ASAP. That was retweeted by Patrick, as well as, quote, tweeted by Patrick to say thank you, Darren. Patrick also issues a statement. Patrick tweeted, here is my statement on Simona Halep's situation and what she goes through since the ITIA is harassing her. In the first line of the statement, he says, first of all, I want to say that I had planned to stay away from any public comments on Simona Halep's case as I truly believed that the ITIA would conduct a fair investigation to establish the truth. Well, now you've really changed my reading of the whole statement because I don't believe your first sentence. That you wanted to stay away from public comments? When has that ever been true? It has never been the case. <laughs> he claims that the biological passport announcement is incorrect and that her, quote, blood parameters are totally normal as checked by, quote, well-renowned experts. Both he and Simona have used the word harassment. They say that the ITIA are preventing her from presenting her case, that they're constantly delaying, and I totally, like, that part of it, I totally get it. I do believe you're entitled to a speedy trial. I know this isn't the United States Constitution, but still, an athlete accused should be able to present the evidence. Now, I don't know why the hearings have been delayed. I, I'm not going to comment on that because I don't know why. Is it because there were more findings from the biological passport? I don't know. The fact is there is a hearing scheduled for the end of May, which is now. So what is the purpose of this, of this PR push from Simona, Darren, and Patrick? You believe she's innocent. Simona supposedly believes she's innocent. Why, as the public, should we... And why, as the public, should we have an opinion at all when there is a process to adjudicate this sort of thing? Her team and supporters, I guess, are are calling into question the legitimacy of this process, I guess, right? Right. Which, to me, this that is not the way to go. To uh, basically accuse the ITIA of not quite lying, but of being incompetent in the way that they interpret the blood pa the biological passport. That's what Patrick said. Right. But we are also not defenders of WADA. We are not defenders <laughs> no. of drug protocols and the way they're administered, the fairness of it. That's not what this is. No. Right? There just has always been a disproportionate response to her specifically than other athletes in the past. Yes. And she's not the biggest that this has happened to. Not in tennis. So what is it? Is it because, as we're told, her character is so beyond reproach like we don't know her no i we only know her as a tennis player like we know that her conduct on court has been really good 
Like, she's a good sports person. But Maria Sharapova did not th- get this kind of response. I mean, not from us either. I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, we, we gave her the benefit of the doubt and everything. But Maria tested positive for something that was actually much less serious than the drug that Simona tested positive for. But that was not met with doubt. It was different, right? A lot of people in tennis were like, yeah, but we're happy to welcome her back when she comes back. But it wasn't like, oh, Maria is innocent. I would never believe that of her. It's like you've made determinations based on how you feel about a certain player, whether or not they're culpable. And Simona apparently is incapable of doing something like this. We don't, the point is, as you said, we don't know her. I want to make a point here about why somebody like Patrick is so invested in Simona's innocence. Why is he being so loud about this? Simona made a very public shift to Patrick at a very specific point in her career after she had purportedly considered retiring after being on and off, mostly on with Darren for all those years. Here was this shift to go with Patrick as he moved on from Serena. So there was this public media attention toward this new partnership. Somebody who is so prominent in tennis, who wants to be so prominent in tennis. And so when your new charge picks up a charge so shortly after joining your stable of players, it does not look good on you. And I'm not here saying that Patrick did anything untoward or he's responsible for anything or he's guilty of anything. I'm just trying to explain why I think he has a vested interest in making sure that Simona is cleared of these charges. For him, it's an existential threat. If a former number one multiple major winner has chosen to work with him and they shortly after test positive for a banned substance, that's really bad for him. It's bad for business. And it doesn't even matter if he's culpable or not. It's bad, just based on PR. Simona made a number of kind of puzzling decisions when she chose to join with Patrick. She fired most of her team. She was in the middle of a divorce at the time, and there were so many weird social media posts and photos about them working together that just, like, they were strange. And so, again, I'm not saying that Patrick is involved, but he he has a real interest in this not being true. Because he very publicly took the reins of her career. Yes. Because when so much of Simona's team was let go or fired... Those positions were then filled with Patrick people. Right. So it's not just like you have a coach traveling with you 20 weeks of the year and you do on-court instruction and, you know, you may go have dinner together. Like, this is a whole operation. Mm -hmm. So if she, you know, she presents the evidence and she proves that this drug entered her system uh, due to contamination, then she's going to have to say who procured that supplement for her. Like, it's still negligence, even if you're not fully guilty for the for the violation, right? It's still negligence, and there will still be a ban attached, but it won't be as severe. So who procured the supplement? What we're saying here is that this whole situation is a big mess. It's messy, messy, messy boots. And the reason why there's such a disconnect on our part with reading all the statements and consuming this story is that we see the mess, but we're being met with 100% innocent. Beyond reproach. What are we missing? Well, and that may turn out to be true, right? But it's it feels like you're messing with an investigation and then saying that the investigation is unfair. 
and harassing. If you're trying to discredit the authorities who rule on this thing ahead of their decision. Again, we will have to keep our eyes peeled for what's next with this story. It keeps on coming. Purportedly, there's going to be a hearing soon. Maybe news will break in the next couple days that we can talk about on the French Open preview episode. So the other thing with Patrick, he's clearly still with Holger. Yes. Like, Just not, not on like a day-to-day basis, apparently. But he's there all the time. We were told that this had ended. Holger made multiple... He made a big statement about it, right? And now Patrick's pinned tweet is still the tweet that he made back in October, where he says, while Simona takes time to recover, she encouraged me to seek a new collaboration. Today I'm pleased to announce that I'm joining Holger's team. I'm really excited to start working with Holger. We've had a special bond since the day we met when he was just 13. So that tells me that he's still coach. I feel very gaslit by this whole thing. It happened, right? It definitely Holger did happen. said, we're no longer working together. Mm-hmm. Then why is he always there? It wasn't even, like, a week's break. It was like, here comes the announcement, and then the next tournament, he's still there. And nobody's saying anything about it. And then it's almost now, like, it never happened. We're made to believe, like, it never (laughs) happened. That brings us to the end of this episode. We'll be back in a few days with our French Open preview. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. This is The Body Serve. You can find everything Body Serve related at linktree.com slash thebodyserve. Thank you to those who have given us a review recently. Much appreciated. Would also appreciate some more. Yeah, and honestly, uh, help us bring our Serena episode into our number one slot. That would be so validating for me. (laughs) It's been, what, three weeks, if that, since it's been released? And it's already our number two episode of all time. It feels so correct to me. (laughs) Thank you so much for the downloads and the listens. And thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.